Welcome to The Rock Podcast. We have the privilege tonight to hear from Pastor Bob Cole, who is a songwriter, worship leader, and personal friend of The Rock. For the next few Wednesdays, he will be sharing with us through the Book of Psalms. Let's join Bob now in tonight's Wednesday night study. Fasten your seatbelts, because we got a lot of ground to cover tonight. I saved the longest psalm for last. That way, if I went over, they couldn't fire me. So, you know, so you got to think of these kind of things. Um, and it is a fat, fat psalm. There are just some wonderful words in here, but let's pray first. You don't want to hear Bible study without the Holy Spirit from me, trust me. Lord, we just ask humbly and expectantly, and even with excitement, that you would give each of us our portion tonight. Just anoint by your Holy Spirit, the, the teacher as well as the hearers. And uh, we look forward to what you have in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 145 tonight. Before we, it's so long, I'm not going to read it all the way through. We're going to just dive right in and take verse by verse. But for you word people, and there are some of you out there that take notes and have looked up the words, and I tell you, that makes my day. Uh, in the first 10 verses, there are four different Hebrew verbs that are translated praise in English. Four different ones. English is such a watered-down language. It truly is. Hebrew is much richer. Greek is richer still. And I thought, because David uses all four of these words often, I'm going I'm to have you put up on the screen the four Hebrew verbs so you note-takers can write them down and then I don't have to stop as I go through. Um, room is the first one, and uh, it is most often translated exalt or magnify. David uses it a lot in his psalms, and it means to make something more conspicuous. I just love that. So when, it's, when David talks about exalting the Lord, he's saying, make God more conspicuous. And the second word, which is safe to say now without getting in political trouble, is the word barach. And it, is, it means to gratefully and affectionately praise. And it is most often translated in English as bless. The reason I'm saying this, I'm teaching from your NIV tonight, just because that's what most of you use. The, the King James, uh, New King James that I use, uses, it, there's negligible difference in the wording. But these words are a little bit different than the NIV. That's why I'm giving you the Greek word, or the uh, Hebrew word, excuse me. The third word is the root of the word hallelujah. It's the word halal. And it literally means, in Hebrew, it means to cause something to shine. So I wrote in brackets, spotlight. When we're talking about praising God and the word halal is used, it means shine that spotlight on him so he shines where people can see him. Isn't that a 
descriptive word. And then the last one is in these first 10 verses is the word yada, and it is most often translated uh, worship or praise, and it, but it's specific. It's body-specific. It means to worship with your hands extended. If I'm in a Pentecostal church, when they try to make you raise your hands, I put my hands in my pockets because I'm just rebellious. But <laughs> if I'm in a church where nobody raises their hands, I raise my hand, baby. So anyway, just free little... Aren't you glad I'm not your pastor? <laughs> so let's dive right in. And uh, I want you to notice also there's a bunch of repeated words. Uh, Gloria, thank you. Gloria counted all the times the word all was used. It's used, I counted 12 times in here. Obviously, that qualifies for a, a keyword. But the, the phrase I will is in here seven times. So before we dive in, I want you to know that real worship and praise is, is primarily a choice I make, not a feeling I have. I may make the choice because of a feeling. I may make the choice because of the opposite feeling. I don't feel like worshiping God at all because life stinks. You know what will pull you right out of that? Worship God. Praise him. Make it a deliberate act of will. So let's dive right in. I will... Exalt you, my God, I love it, I, David, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. First, exalt is the word room that you wrote down. The second one is the word Barak. Every day I will praise you. And I always write in my Bible, no matter what. Your day may stink. Yesterday may have been a good day. And your day may stink today, but you know what? God hasn't changed. And it's a good idea. To, and my Amplified Bible has the cutest little thing. It says, every day with its new reasons, I will praise you. What a great, what a great way to look at life. By the way, I wanted to say something about the, the hailstorm and the wind. And, and those of you that were out in it like I was, there's the old, there's, here's a free little word lesson. The old Scots dialect. For that kind of weather is the word girly. <laughs> girly. Which spelled G-U-R-L-E-Y, not G-I-R-L-I-E. But just anyway, free little sermon there. No, no charge for that Scottish uh, dialect <laughs> lesson. Every day with its new reasons, no matter what, I will praise you. We can learn from this guy because God said, this is a guy after my heart. God looks at David, and David was not a straight-A student, as we know. God looks at David and says, I love that guy's heart. Some of you in here like that, and I'm glad I got to know you. Hope we get to do this again now that we know how fun it is. And I extol your name. I, every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And there's the word halal, to cause to shine I don't know about you, I don't use the word extol in my no normal vocabulary. Uh, I love the idea of shining the spotlight on God. Because you know what? He's beautiful all the time. And I want people to see him. That's the passion of my heart. 
And I love teaching God's word because it's one of the best ways to see what he's like. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And I wrote in my notes because he's bigger than our brains. <laughs> he is. You know what? You barely know him. I don't care how long you've walked with him, how, how many biblical languages you speak, how many times you've read through the Bible, you barely know him, and I barely know him. And that's why we're going to need billions and billions of years to fully appreciate knowing him. His greatness no one can fathom, bigger than our brains. One generation commands your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. The word for generation there, if you want to check me out, it's an interesting word. It's the word door. D-O-R is the transliteration of it. And it's not just speaking of what we think of our word generation as. You, you know, your grandparents, you, and your kids, and their kids, and those are generations. But this Hebrew word means the entire circle of life. When I first read this, the first thing that popped in my mind was my grandmother. Those of you that knew my grandmother, she was, they just threw away the mold when they made her. She was just the most like Jesus of any human that I have ever, ever known. But my grandma always treated me. Whenever I was, would come down here on tour, she lived in Clear Lake, I would go way out of my way just to hang out with her. And, and we, you know what we'd do all day long? We'd talk about Jesus all day long. She never got tired of it. She did not have one old church lady bone in her entire body. She was fresh and new with the Lord, Right? Every single day. You know one of the coolest things about her, though? She treated, always treated me like I was her brother in the Lord. Not that snot-nosed kid that I changed your diapers when you were going, so what's your step? No, not that at all. She treated me like I was her brother in the Lord. And so I treated her with reverence, like she was my sister in the Lord. That's what this is talking about. When he's talking about one generation commending God's works to another, he's not necessarily talking about parents to kids. Because it works in reverse. It could be parents talking to kids. It could be kids talking to their parents. And if you have kids that know Jesus, you know what an absolute priceless blessing it is when they talk to you about the Lord and you learn something. Verses 5, 6, and 7 are typical Hebrew poetic advice. By the way, this is an acrostic poem, which means that each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You it's quite impressive, actually, in Hebrew. You completely lose it in English, so I don't usually make a big deal out of it. Um, but it is, it's an amazing piece of poetry if you just let it, look at it from that standpoint. But a common Hebrew poetic device, I need to slow my brain down, common Hebrew poetic device is to restate something in different words. The same principle, and David does it here three times in verses 5, 6, and 7. When he says, they speak of the glory, I'll just read verses 5, 6, and 7. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The word they is referring to just the common people. Remember, David is the king. He says, he says, I hear you guys. I hear what you talk about. 
I hear how, how you talk about the Lord. I just want you to know your king does that too. I do that too. I purpose to do that. I deliberately do that. Don't you wish you had a king like that? Well, you do, actually. You have Jesus, and he's your king. But I wanted uh, to give you the, the word for meditate. is the Hebrew word siach, S-I-A-C-H. Now, don't freak out. This is not New Age. But the word meditate is a very strong biblical word, and here's what it means. It means to ponder something out loud, even to yourself. It's not really biblical meditation if it's all in your head, because it's speaking of pondering something out loud. Well, you can see the value of that. If you have a friend, like I do, a couple of friends, that I can ponder out loud about God's goodness uh, and his great deeds, I can do that all day long, and they never get tired of it. Then you are rich, my friend, if you have friends like that. If you're married to somebody like that, you're not going to get any reward in heaven because you've got it right here, dude. Um, so the common people speak of the glory, splendor of your majesty, and I'm going to ponder it out loud myself in the palace, David says. The common people tell of your awesome works, and I'm going to proclaim it. Two things happen in verse 7. They celebrate. That's, I think, an unfortunate translation of the Hebrew word, which I didn't write down. But the Hebrew literally says they celebrate, they, uh, where are my notes? They utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Remember the, God told the early Hebrews to every time he did something really outstanding to build a little monument there so that somebody coming along later, it's, you know, dad and, and his son walking along and son says, dad, what's that? What's that monument there? And he says, oh, you got to hear this story. This is some really cool thing that God did. Those, that Ebenezer, you know, the Ebenezer uh, principle to mark God's goodness. Here's what happens when we say this stuff out loud, when we proclaim it. Look at the verbs here. Speak, meditate, um, tell, proclaim, celebrate, joyfully sing. Those are all words to get the message out there. It does two things. Number one, it reminds us, because we leak, reminds us, and then it benefits those that are around us. If you want to pray for me, well, there's, I have a big, long list of prayer requests, but number one would be that I would do this more out there in the world. I, I know it's going to be hard to believe it because I'm so outlandish looking, but I am a very shy person. I don't do well in crowds. So go figure. Look what God calls me to do. I mean, what were you thinking? <laughs> but I want to be a person that's pondering out loud the goodness of the Lord. It's great to, it's easy to do at Christmas time. All you do is walk down the street singing Christmas carols. You know, the ones with Jesus in them, the ones with theology in them. And rarely do people look at you weird for doing that. So I just want to be a person that is pondering out loud like David did. You can switch to the next slide, verses 8 through 13. This is so good. I wish we had two hours. There's so many good things in here. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Hebrew literally says abounding in love, which I think is a fatter word. Abounding means more than 
enough. In fact, it means more than could ever possibly be used up. Isn't that great? It's an exact quote, by the way, from Exodus 34. Let me tell you the story, and then I'll read you. Uh, in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses had this confab with God, and everything was going just fine. And Moses said, look, if you're not going with us, I ain't going. You know, you made a promise, take us to the promised land, but unless you go with us, I, I quit right here. And then out of the blue, Moses, he was a blurter. He just blurted, and he said, show me your glory, please. Well, God's glory, here's another free little word. Kavod is the Hebrew word. God's glory is God unedited. It's God unfiltered. I love unedited because almost every concept we have of God is edited by our puny brains or the way we were raised or something that we read. Um, and somehow it's filtered through all of that in our experiences. By the way, never define, it's always a bad idea to define God based on your experiences. That's backwards. We interpret our experiences filtered through who, what God says he is, not what somebody else says he is, but in, when, got a little bit ahead of myself, when Moses said, show me your glory, I want to see you unedited, unfiltered. God said words to this effect. He said, dude, if I did that, it would fry your hard drive. <laughs> it would kill you. So, I am going to let you see my vapor trail. Here, hide behind this granite boulder. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll run by real fast, and then you'll see my vapor trail. But if you saw me unedited and unfiltered, it would kill you. And even then, seeing God's vapor trail under those circumstances, remember Moses' face shone for weeks. I'll be, I wonder how many times he got up in the morning when he was, well, he didn't shave, we know that, but when he got up and he looked in the mirror, if he thought, oh, good Lord, what if he'd answered that prayer? Well, I'd be dead right now if he'd let me see him unedited and unfiltered. But here's the cool thing. Exodus 34, God says to him, I'll tell you what I'll do. My name is the same as my glory. And I'll tell you what my name means. And then Exodus 34, verse 6 says, He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, God proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord. I wonder if there was reverb on him when he said this. The Lord. We know he sounded like Charlton Heston. We know that for sure. <laughs> the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is God saying what he's like. Maintaining love to thousands, or to the thousands of the generation is also um, faithful to the Hebrew, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet he does not leave the unrepentant guilty unpunished. So you want to know what God's like? Filter all of your experiences Let's say you have a, something really crummy happens to you, like stuff that's happened to me. It is so tempting to say, because God knew this was going to happen, and he didn't stop it from happening, therefore God doesn't really care what happens to me. 
or he's God's powerless. But see, what God says about himself is, no, I'm paying way more attention to you than you could possibly imagine. Remember, Jesus said he's counting the hairs on your head, which changes every day. And God says, I, I love you enough to give my only son to cleanse your sin, to suffer for your sin so that you could be with me forever. I love you. So then you filter the bad thing through what God says about himself, and you filter it through Romans 8, 28, and then the, the, the little un, at the very end of that equation, the little, after the little equal signs, you realize art supplies. Realize this bad thing that God allowed to happen that he could have stopped, if I filter through what God says about himself and what God's word says, I realize it's art supplies. He's doing something good that right now, I don't get it, but it's going to be good because he's good. Some free little sermon there from Exodus 34. One word I want to look at, and I tell you, I have preached an entire one-hour message on this one word. It's a fat word. It's the word translated love. It's the word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D-H, chesed. It's probably the most important word in the Old Testament describing God's character. It's translated mercy, unfailing love, uh, loving kindness, um, and love. It's translated those four ways in English. It's the, it's the Hebrew equivalent of grace. Here's what it means in a nutshell. And if you look it up in, in, a, in a, an expository dictionary, there'll be two or three pages because it's a really, really fat word. But here in a nutshell is what chesed is, which translated love, which, by the way, God has more than he knows what to do with. He's, he's filled all of his warehouses. He's stacking it in the streets. He's never going to run out of this. It is when you take someone who is not related to you and you treat them as if they are your favorite child. In a nutshell, that's what chesed means. And it is central to God's character or none of us would be here. Because nobody deserved what he gave us lavishly. And I don't know about you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and you're his favorite. I don't know if you've ever seen Gail Irwin's bumper sticker. It says, Jesus loves me, but you're his favorite. I really love that. So God is abounding in love and chesed, and I think I can get through this. I, I was afraid I was going to get hung up on verse 8 because I just love talking about what God says he's like. I grew up in a church with screaming preachers, and for it's still my, still my knee-jerk reaction. If God wants me alone with him, I'm afraid he's going to yell at me. Still to this day, after 35, 40 years of hearing about grace, that impacted me so much. If that's you, underline those words because this is God saying, David is quoting what God said about himself. This is what I'm like. All your works, oh, excuse me, verse 9. One of my favorite Hebrew words is in this, and I, I, I almost passed it up. The Lord is good to all. Here's where the alls start. There's 12 of them in here. And you get the point that David's trying to just say, look, no exceptions. This is the way God is to those that are part of his kingdom, those that are his own. The Lord is good to all, 
and he has compassion on all that he has made. In the King James and in my new King James, it says the words tender mercies over all that he has made. That's one word in Hebrew, and it's the word racham, R-A-C-H-A-M. It's a wonderful word. You're going to want to write it down after you hear what it means. It is a masculine noun whose root is the Hebrew word for womb. It is, it, it's, it's a very ungodlike word for most people's conception of big, fearsome, fearsome God. I always picture racham as when you see a pregnant woman, like I watched Jordy. And I watched her petting her tummy. You see a pregnant woman, and she's very protective, and she's very tender. That's what this word means. David, it was one of David's favorite words to use to describe God and God's actions. Tender, protective. Racham. Isn't that a great word? It's a masculine word. But by the way, where did the mother heart come from? came from your father in heaven. He invented it. So that tenderness, that instinctive thing that men sometimes are so terrible at, that's him. That's the way he is. And he's that way with all, over all of his works, all that he's made. Racham. I love that. I had one very manly man in my church, last church that I pastored who seemed offended by that. And I thought, dude, you need to get over that because you're missing out on one of the most amazing things about your mighty God who created the cosmos, who is one day going to destroy everything that Satan has done and start all over again and make everything perfect. And that God cares about you with this racham. And, and you just need to get over that, dude. He left my church, so I didn't get to tell him that. He didn't think it was a very manly word. So there's, there's some counseling issues there, aren't there, that need to be addressed. Verse 10, all your works praise you. And there's the word yada, the last of the four Hebrew verbs. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. And that word extol is the word barak, which means to bless or to gratefully and affectionately praise your faithful people. And verse 11, veve, that pronoun, plural pronoun, is speaking of your faithful people. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. If you would sat through very many of my Bible studies, you would have already underlined the words, so that. They are really important words in the Bible. When you see the words, so that, you're about to be told the reason for something. And if you have a brain like mine, I live for reasons for things. I God is about to tell you the purpose of something. So every time you see so that, circle it or underline it, and then look what comes after it. Your faithful people tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. How are they going to know, folks? Is Oprah going to tell them? Are they going to hear it at school? 
How are they going to know what God's kingdom is like if God's, if the subjects in God's kingdom don't tell people? I so appreciated what Mark said on Sunday. He said so eloquently. And by the way, when we tell people these things as God's faithful people, it strengthens them and it reminds us. And I need to be reminded often. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, let's just talk about that. I have a couple of little rabbit trails on that. The first question is, what is God's kingdom? In simplest terms, God's kingdom is where God is overtly ruling. Technically, he is the king over everything, but right now, the one who's ruling in this world is Satan. That's about to change. Doesn't affect God's kingdom, but it does affect those who are not part of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom is where God is ruling. Let me say this unequivocally. God's kingdom is not a democracy. That may be a decent form of human government, and technically we're not a democracy either. We're a republic, right? But same principle. So let me say this. I'll probably get somebody mad at me, but if people, if humans are ruling, it's not God's kingdom. That mistake has been made for several thousand years by the church. If we call it God's kingdom, but God's not ruling, then we're liars. It's not God's kingdom if he's not overtly ruling. Well, I could really, I promised God I would not rant about this. I hope that God, I believe that God is ruling in this church. Therefore, it's God's kingdom in ter terms of the government of this church. God is at least on the board he gets the overriding vote and veto. In the old days when I used to travel 250 days a year doing concerts and teaching, I, didn't, I never charged anything. I've never said I won't come unless you give me money. But what I did say, it was in my little promo letter, it said I want you to get the board together before I agree to come and I want you to first of all pray about whether God wants me to be there because I don't want to waste your time and my time if it's not God setting it up. And the second is, I want you to pray about what God wants you to give me. And if you can't afford anything and God says don't give him anything, he'll take care of me. But I want you to pray. I won't come unless you promise me you're going to pray about it. You would not believe some of the letters I got back from the entertainment committee. At the church, and one, one dear brother said, we can't pray. We have to have a figure. We have to vote on it. You know what? That's a democracy. That's not a kingdom. In a kingdom, there's only two kinds of people. The king and everybody else. <laughs> so did I rant? I don't think that was, don't think that was too ranty. Rabbit trail number two. Right now, God's kingdom is in internal. It is eternal, but it is internal. One day, that's not going to be true. One day, one day, it's going to be overtly physical, as real and physical as any kingdom has ever been. And I don't think we're far away from that. 
But when the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel tried to trick Jesus with a question about God's kingdom, in Luke 17, Jesus, he said one of those inflammatory things that always got him in trouble. He said, dudes, words to that effect, God's kingdom is already among you. And the, he, and the Greek is very specific. Right this minute. Present indicative active. It's happening as I speak. God's kingdom is right here among you. Well, how could he say that? Well, because the king was there. The king was standing right there. So here's my little rabbit trail. If God is ruling in my life, where I am willfully submitted to his rule. That means every place I go, every place you go, you and I take the kingdom of God with us. In a furniture store, wherever, wherever you are, the kingdom of God doesn't exist in this room unless there's somebody that's in the kingdom of God in this room. I'm sure you know that. But just think, you're taking the kingdom of God with you wherever you go. Some people are never going to see what the kingdom of God looks like except in your life and in my life. That's very sobering, as the message on Sunday was very, very sobering. That is my purpose, but you know what? I'm a shy person, and I forget that the king of kings, who's the master of every situation, is going with me everywhere I go, and he's, he is able. So those are my rabbit trails. 13 and a half says, the Lord is trustworthy in all his promises. He's trustworthy in all he promises. All means no exceptions. means there's not one promise where God exaggerated. What he said, he's absolutely trustworthy to keep those promises. I have to tell you that is not always going to look like it. Sometimes it's going to, believing this is true is going to contradict the visible evidence temporarily. But trust, trust what God's word says, he is going to keep his promise. David didn't always know all of this stuff. He learned this stuff through a life of having a heart for God. And he saw, and I'm sure you have too. If you've walked with the Lord very long, you realize these things are true. God's proven these things are true in my life. And God is faithful in all he does. That is repeated twice in this psalm. It's also repeated down in verse 17. Anytime God repeats himself, <laughs> take note. Because you know how we are. We need to be reminded of the important stuff, don't we? He repeats himself. God is faithful in all he does. All he does. There's not one thing God does where he loses track of who he is or is not faithful to who he is or his character, every single thing he does. Here's one of my favorite scriptures. It's 2 Timothy 2.13. should be underlined in your Bible. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't disown himself. What that means is, if we don't, even if we don't believe it, even if we don't have enough faith to fight our way out of a wet paper bag, even if we are faithless, totally, God doesn't stop being who he is. 
That's why all these promises are so fabulous, because they're true, even if I don't believe them. I don't have to believe them for them to be true. If I want to benefit fully from them, I need to believe them. So God is faithful in all he does. And I'll tell you, if you start to stand on that, the lies are going to flow like wine. Because the devil will always challenge this. Always. He's been doing it from day one with humans. He doesn't need very many plays in his playbook because they work. Where am I? Verse 14. Okay, next page. The Lord upholds all, no exceptions, who fall. In Hebrew, it's a participle. I love participles. It literally should render, the Lord upholds all who are falling. It's just, it's a, it's a much more, participles are a lot more immediate than out there somewhere in the future. If you're falling, God upholds you. And I want to read you another fabulous verse. We didn't get to it back in November when we looked at the first 11 verses of Psalm 37. But in Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24, I'll read it to you. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. And though he may stumble, he will not fall completely because the Lord upholds him with his hand. Makes me cry. I have stumbled so many times. I, by rights, should be totally crashed and burned many times over. And you know why I, I, I didn't? Because my faithful Lord held me up. In every way you can hold someone up, I love that promise. He upholds all who are falling. The word falling, the Hebrew word is nafal, which is interesting, N-A-P-H-A-L, nafal. It means to fall due to a violent or accidental event. Isn't that cool? You ever had any violent or accidental events happen in your life and it knocked you totally off balance? You know why you weren't destroyed? Because your faithful God held you up. Praise his name. I love that about him. And he lifts up all who are bowed down. I've gotten to the point now where I used to look up keywords. Now I look up every word <laughs> because they're just, just, I don't know Hebrew very well. I'm not a scholar. I want to be. So I'm studying hard. But the words bow down mean overloaded. Can you relate? Are you overloaded in any way? Overloaded or overburdened. The Lord lifts up all who are bowed down. I believe, I believe all of these promises in verses 14 through, 9, through 18, I believe that they are, are all conditioned by verse 18, which says the Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. Meaning if I'm looking to him when I'm falling, he'll uphold me. If I'm looking to him when I'm overburdened and overloaded, he will lift me up. What did Jesus say? He said, come to me, all you who are what? 
overburdened, weary and overburdened. And I'll give you such a list of stuff to do, you will not believe it. No. That's the Godfather. That's not God. That's a totally different thing. I'll give you what? Rest. That makes me cry too. I had a period of years in my life where I cried myself to sleep every single night. The grief would just not go away. And I have a close walk with the Lord. I had to fight just for the will to live. He held me up. Here I am. That was quite a while ago. And I found that when I went to him, he did give me rest. I might have to do that a thousand times a day. But he always gave me rest when I came to him. It's a promise. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you. That's important. God bless you. The eyes of all look to you, and the word for look means to look expectantly, meaning you're looking to God because you're expecting him to do something. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. I have stood on this verse for my sanity. I've gone through a number of times in my life where I did not have any food in my cupboards or my refrigerator. I can't tell you how many times, even recently, within this last year, where I ate my last meal. And a couple of times, on the last bite of my last meal, somebody knocked on my door. Somebody who I barely knew, who had no idea the dire straits I was in, and they handed me a $100 bill and said, you know, this morning God told me to bring this to you. And I would have been here sooner, and I said, no, 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 you don't get it. I just ate the last bite of my last meal, and God's showing off here. <laughs> this is a timing thing, okay? Is he, is he done swallowing? Okay, now. One time, all I had in my refrigerator was a half a cube of butter. That was in the days when I used to eat butter and a heel of a crust of bread, uh, of a loaf of bread. And I like the heel. I like the heel because it's more density than the rest of it, but still, you don't want to know that. So I sat down, bowed my head, didn't fold my hands, I just bowed my head, and I was so grateful that I had anything to eat. It was my only meal that day. I love this story. And while I'm asking God's blessing on my crust of bread, and I hear this, Flop, 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 flop. And I went to my back kitchen door, and there was a guy standing there dripping wet in a wetsuit. And it was a guy I knew from Calvary, and he said, I just finished fishing for lobsters, and as I was driving by your house, God told me to come in and give me this, and he handed me two lobster tails. I had a half a cube of butter. <laughs> and I just thought... You are showing off. <laughs> but I tell you, when I've been in those times where I forget all that, and all I can see is what I don't have, and I have invisible means of support, and all that stuff, this verse, God has proven that this is true to me. Never underestimate the value of poverty. If you can always answer your own prayers... I feel sorry for you, 
because you don't get to see God do stuff like this. I thank him for poverty in my life. I thank him for all the times I had no idea where my next meal was coming from except he promised me he would give me my food at the proper time, and I took him at his word, and you know what? He never failed. Not once. But you know what? You never know for sure Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. Then it's just not theory anymore. Then you know. It's worth knowing, folks. It's worth knowing. If you get fired tomorrow, at least run this through your mind. Because God isn't going to change. Where am I? 16. Oh, I've got to say something about manna in verse 15. The whole point of manna, you know, God invented food. The word manna means, what's this? It was something they'd never seen before. In numbers, it tells us it tasted like cookies. God provided every morning enough for that day. 14,470 days in a row, and they never appreciated it. They whined because they couldn't save some for tomorrow, except on the night before Shabbat. They could save some because you didn't want them out gathering manna. But if they tried to save it at other times, it would rot. Maggots would crawl through it. And you think, God, you're just being so mean. He says, oh, you have no idea. I'm blowing you kisses like crazy. Every single morning, I'm giving you what you need for the day. Do you need any more than that? Well, no, we don't. But we freak out if we don't know where it's coming from for the next 30 days and the next five years. There's something so valuable about that whole manna principle. I think that's why God's run me through that a bunch of times. He just said, look, I just want you to see how faithful I am. And that's going to mean your cupboards are going to be empty sometimes, and I'm going to provide for you in miraculous ways. Is that okay with you? Well, I guess. Sure, sure, go for it. (laughs) You know what? They never got it. Forty solid years, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, and they whined and complained and felt like orphans because they didn't have eyes to see. God, help us to believe you. Verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. I believe every true satisfaction only comes from God. Satan cannot provide in all of his counterfeits. None of them are truly satisfying. He's unable to provide anything that fully satisfies. Usually there's hooks in it, but God opens his hand, and he satisfies the desires of every living thing. Verse 17. I think I can do this in about another 10 minutes, if that's okay. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. So (laughs) You can leave if you have to, but you're going to miss some really good stuff. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. That's the second time he's said that. God is not schizophrenic. He's not going to just be the kissy face, nice, loving Father God one day and then just turn into a monster the next day. No, that might have been your earthly father. That might have been your alcoholic mother. But that's not your heavenly father. And he doesn't change. He is the same 
every single day. He doesn't change. And I tell you, he's the only thing in this whole world like that. I'm all over the map. Man, if, it was, if God treated me the way I always believed him, never mind, we don't want to go there. Trust me, you don't want to go there. James 1.17, remember, James said, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from one place, comes from your heavenly Father. Thank you, William Scotland, for showing me every good gift and every perfect gift. I had never noticed that before. I already call, always called it every good and perfect gift, but read it, James 1.17, it's really a good promise. But right before that, James said, don't be deceived. It was James's answer to temptation. It's in that whole passage where he's talking about temptation. James's answer to temptation was, look, don't let Satan tell you that you can go around and get something that God is not offering you and have it be a good thing. Doesn't work that way. Everything God gives is righteous and faithful and all that he does, and nobody else is like that. Satan can't be like that, so don't be deceived. Verse 18, this is the big guns verse in here to me, although I, there's some great stuff in there, wasn't there? But verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And I want to spend some time on this. I might go another 15 minutes. This is what I prayed for as a pastor, the 20 years that I pastored out in the upper right-hand corner and the 10 years I pastored in other places. This is the thing I prayed for my people that I loved every single day. Lord, I want them to call on you in truth because I know what you'll do. So I can't fix their problems. If I was a bazillionaire, I couldn't fix all of their problems, but I know what you'll do if they call on you. So I would pray that God would work in their hearts that they would learn to make a habit of calling upon him in truth. I told Leela that I discovered a new word uh, when I was studying this. And, and uh, she's a word lady too, so she, she wanted to know what it was and I told her she had to sit through the whole Bible study to hear it. So thank you for waiting. It's the word near. It's the Hebrew word karov or karov, Q-A-R-O-V. And here's what it means. It means near in place and time and kinship. Isn't that fat? God's near to those that call on him in truth. He's near in place. He's right there. George MacDonald said, God is closer than your next breath. And he's near in time. You don't have to make an appointment. And he's near in kinship. You don't have to go through his secretary and try to convince him to pay attention to you. He is your daddy. And he loves being your daddy. Not just the mighty God that rules the universe. Just like my daddy loved being my daddy. Your heavenly father does. To all who call on him in truth. And I want to talk about this. Because I think this is the qualifier for all of these promises. Here's what this word, the, the Hebrew word for in truth, the adjective is emet, E-M-E-T-H, 
emet, excuse me. Here's what it means. It means honestly, not playing games, humbly, meaning you're not treating him like your butler, honestly, humbly, acknowledging who he really is, not playing games. What's the opposite of that? Manipulation, ritual, in a con job. I meet people all the time, like they must think God is stupid, that he can't see through their con job. Of course he does. God is not playing games. He can't be manipulated. He can't be fooled or coerced. Promised I wouldn't rant, but I do have to say this. I absolutely despise the teaching that says if you give so much to God, then God's going to unload a whole bunch of money on you. Don't you think God is smart enough to know the difference between a gift and a bribe? If you're only giving something to God to get something back from him, don't you think he knows that? He's not dumb. If I'm giving to him, from an honest heart, just like if I'm calling upon him with an honest heart, he has made promises about what he'll do. But if I'm just given so that he'll give me something back, that's a bribe. It's insulting. It's disrespectful. And it won't work. Jesus talked about doing things for the wrong motive and saying you just canceled out what you did because your motive stunk. Same deal. So that's, that wasn't really ranting, was it? The Lord is near in place and time and kinship to those who really honestly and humbly call upon him. And I can wrap this up in 10 minutes. I know I said that, didn't I? It's <laughs> still true. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. The word fear is the Hebrew word yare, Y-A-R-E, and it means reverential. It's with it's what the old saints called holy fear. It's not cringing fear. It's, it's absolute reverence and awe for who God is and the fear of, of uh, disappointing him or uh, upsetting him in any way, not because you're afraid of him in the cringing way. The Lord fulfills the desires of those who revere him. Revere is the way some of the... English Bibles translate that word, Yahweh. He hears their cry, and he saves them. That word saves is the word yasha. We've talked about it before. It's the root of Jesus' name. Jesus' name, Yeshua, means God saves us, or God rescues us. Just to avoid cliches, because Church people are famous for cliches that they don't know what they mean. Um, I refuse to ever talk about Jesus saving us. I always use the word rescue, which I think is a fatter word anyway, but it's, it's one of the synonyms of this word, yasha. He saves them. And I'm going to make one comment, and I can wrap these last two verses up. Please hear me. This is something God dropped in my head this morning, so he wanted somebody to hear this. God hears our cry, and he rescues us. He saves us. He delivers us. But, folks, God never answers prayer 
based on our sense of urgency. Never. That's not what moves him, our sense of urgency. That's why people think God's late. But he's never late. God only answers prayer based on one thing, and that is his perfect love and wisdom. And that's why he doesn't always say yes. Sometimes no is a good answer. Sometimes not now is just as good of an answer. So he does hear their cry, and he does rescue them. And I wrote in parentheses, in his time. That's the sticky wicket for some of us. And I tell you if, you, if you go down that road where you're thinking, oh, God's not paying attention or God's late, the, the lies will flow like wine. Let's wrap this up with these last two verses. The Lord watches over all who love him. That's a conditional promise, isn't it? Who does he watch over? The ones that love him. The words watch over are one Hebrew word, shamar, and it is the word for what a shepherd does or what a gardener does. It's a very broad word, to care for, to water, to protect, to feed. Look out your window and say, are they okay? How are those roses doing? Do, you, do I need to put a little more, more fertilizer there? You know, have those, how's Billy, that one sheep that, you know how bullheaded he is. You know, he's always wandering off. I better go out and get him. It's that watchful care. Shamar. But the wicked, he will destroy. I gave you the definition a couple of weeks ago of the biblical word for wicked. It's a specific word, both Greek and Hebrew. The word wicked means somebody who knows the truth and knows what wrong is. They know what right is, but they deliberately choose what is wrong. That's what wicked means. Now, rewind all the way back to Exodus 34, where God says what he's like, and he said, who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So even wickedness is not out of his reach, or some of us wouldn't be here, would we? My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord, the king said, David. Let every creature bless his holy name. Not bad. Only went five minutes over. Isn't that good stuff? Isn't there great stuff in there? God is faithful in every promise that he makes. He's trustworthy. When he promises something, he never reneges. You can take that to the bank. Please don't define what God is like based on your experiences. All disappointment with God is premature. All of it. The story's just simply not over yet, folks. And you can't judge God based on an incomplete story that's still unfolding. We are all going to be giving him a standing ovation. In the end, we're just going to go, you were so smart how you did that. And somebody, you know, your cousin Charles is going to be saying, but when then why were you whining all the time? Why were you accusing God of not paying attention? And, and uh, you don't do that. Let's close in prayer. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.